The first half of the story that we've been looking at so far is all about God getting Joseph onto the throne in Egypt. And we've seen that the shape of Joseph's life, and we'll see a slide here that sums this up for us, the shape of Joseph's life is one. Here it comes. There we go. The shape of Joseph's life is like a U-band. Um, his life goes down and then it comes back up. Ultimately, to the throne, a crown in Egypt. The beloved son, Joseph, rejected by his brothers, stripped of his coat, sold to foreign powers, but then remarkably raised up, exalted to the throne in Egypt. You see the U-band? Kind of down and then up. And the original dreams that Joseph had when he was just 17 years old were God's way of promising this rise to prominence to glory to Joseph. But don't forget that the same dreams also told Joseph something else. His brothers would be there too. So this is a game of two halves. We're turning now to the second half of the story, which is all about how God gets the brothers also to Egypt, to join Joseph. Joseph's made it there. God has got his man on the throne. But the story isn't complete. And Joseph's dreams, in fact, are not fulfilled until the brothers get there and join him in Egypt. And the shape of all of this surely points us again to Jesus. Jesus also came down and then went back up. He came from heaven into this broken world. He lived and died and rose again and then was exalted to a higher throne than Joseph. To God's right hand, a saviour and lord and king. But here's the thing, Jesus' story doesn't end there either. That was just the first half. The second half is the story of how God draws his people to Jesus and all of them making it together to get home to where Jesus is. It's, it's a mirror, the same story. Jesus is not a king with no kingdom. Heaven will not be empty. God has got his Messiah, Christ, to the throne. And he will also make sure that every single one of his beloved people that Christ came to win will join him there too. 
One writer very helpfully sums this up. If the Gospels tell the story of the true and better Joseph, that is Jesus, being raised up to the rightful position of emperor of the world, then the book of Acts and the rest of church history tell us the story of that same king ensuring that his people join him. Now, this story has been asking us questions. I love the fact that we come to the Bible with questions, but sometimes the Bible kind of interrogates us as well, doesn't it? And some, in, in, in the first week, we were thinking about, is God in control? If you were here last week, we were thinking about the question, how then can we live faithfully in dark times? But this part of the story is all about how these brothers who start out hating Joseph, end up embracing him and loving him and gladly even bowing to him in Egypt. That was the dream, wasn't it? So one of the questions is, can they change? Can they change? They were brutes. But the other question is when they finally stand before Joseph in Egypt, when they get there, the obvious question is, will they find mercy? Joseph would be well within his rights to punish them, wouldn't he, for what they did. Can they change and will they find mercy? This is a story of reconciliation. This is a story of enemies becoming friends. And it points to a much bigger and even more glorious story. That's why we read, Esther read to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes his job as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor of people. He describes his job and says, ours is a ministry of reconciliation. His job was to tell people, in a sense, my job, our job, is to tell people that God wants to be friends he wants to reconcile people who are his enemies and draw them into his family we were God's enemies and God in his great love sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be clothed broken as we are in his righteousness Jesus rose again and made it to the throne. And the question is, how do we get there? How do we follow him there? And deep down in our hearts, we're asking these questions, aren't we? Can we really change? And when we get there, will we find mercy? So, in our time together this afternoon, I want to focus on the brothers. And I want us to see what must happen in their lives to get them to Egypt and to enable them to be reconciled to Joseph and their dad, actually. I think this, this is because their journey to Egypt is not just a geographical journey. This journey teaches us something about how we can be reconciled to God and make it to join Jesus and share in his glory.
Does that make sense? We didn't read the narrative because I felt sorry for us to having to read four chapters of Genesis, and we would still be reading them now, wouldn't we? It's wonderful to read them. I hope you're reading them at home as we're going through this series. We're going to begin in chapter 42, and uh, I, I think you'll really benefit today if you've got a Bible open on your phone or on your lap. Um, what we're going to do is dip into the story, and we're going to try to see four steps along the road that the brothers took before they are beautifully reconciled to Joseph in Egypt. So turn with me to Genesis 42, and we'll see the first of four steps. I'm going to suggest that step number one is they had to face the wrong that they'd done. We understand that, don't we? This first step's painful. I'll I'll warn you now, this first step is a painful one. They had to face the wrong they'd done. Chapter 42 begins with a famine. And it begins, I want to call Jacob a Yorkshireman here. It begins with Jacob confronting his sons and sending them to Egypt to buy grain. They seem to me indecisive. And Joseph is like, what are you doing? Just staring at each other, guys. <laughs> chop, chop. <laughs> We're all going to starve here. You need to go to Egypt. It's, it's like he's like really blunt with them. What are you doing? We've got no food. Get to Egypt. And notice in verse 3 that 10 brothers go. Presumably, the more that go, the more grain they can bring back for their families. But Jacob will not let Benjamin go to Egypt. Benjamin is the very youngest of 12 and the only other son of his beloved wife, Rachel. He's the baby in the family. Rachel died in childbirth, and he's lost Joseph. He thinks Joseph's been mauled to death by a wild animal. There's no way he's letting Benjamin go. So 10 of them go off to Egypt to buy grain. This is now 20 years after selling Joseph as a slave. And as these brothers make the same trade journey, trade route, that Joseph had, never in their wildest dreams or worst nightmares did they ever think that they would see Joseph again. By now, in verse 6, you'll see there that Joseph is in charge. And because of his skill and prudence and foresight, Egypt has grain and crowds of hungry foreigners are flocking to Egypt and getting in line to buy the grain that Joseph has stored. And the brothers here unwittingly fulfill the dream that Joseph had had 20 years earlier as they bow before him with their faces to the ground. They don't recognise Joseph at all. His beard is shaved off, probably in the Egyptian style. He's clothed in his official Egyptian robes and he's no longer a teenager who's wet behind the ears. This is a man now who is comfortable with power and authority. They have no idea that it's Joseph, the brother they sold. And they bow with their faces to the ground. Twice we're told in this narrative that Joseph, though, recognises them. Verse 9 says that Joseph remembered his dreams. 
you wonder if Joseph has been expecting this moment as the, as the people line up queuing for grain. He knew that one day he would see them all again and the famine kind of explains why they would come. And his exaltation to be the governor explains why they would bow to him. He's been, he's been waiting for this day to come. But this is not for Joseph the moment for revenge. He knows that this is the beginning of his family's salvation. But Joseph is shrewd. And he has the wisdom and the restraint not to immediately embrace them and say, come on in, but to get some answers. In this moment, Joseph's thinking, can I trust them? I wonder how my dad is. 20 years. Joseph knows that reconciliation is not possible until certain things are clear. Let's read on and let the narrative speak for itself. Verse 9. Then Joseph remembered his dreams about them and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're not spies. Verse 12, no, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers. The sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. What a sweat. <laughs> three days in jail. So Joseph learns here, first of all, that his dad is still alive. That must have made his heart pump, beat a little bit faster. He also knows that Benjamin is still alive. But having slept on his plan and, and let them stew in jail for three days, he reverses the plan and turns it around, and he decides that they can all go home and one of them should stay in jail. I think there's a mercy in this new plan because it means that they can take more grain home for their desperate families. But it's also a test, isn't it, of whether they are still the kind of family who would abandon one of their brothers. This first step's very painful for the brothers. Bear with me. I, w I want to see three components here. And the these are subheadings, if you like, if you're taking notes. But first of all, there's something here about them beginning to acknowledge their guilt. Verse 21. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. 
This is Joseph they're talking about from 20 years before. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realise that Joseph could understand them because he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep but then came back and spoke to them again and he had Simeon bound, taken from them and bound before their very eyes. It seems that Joseph's plan touches the raw nerve of their long-standing secret guilt. And they immediately start arguing about what they've done and whose fault it was, not realising that their brother Joseph can understand every word. How poignant is it to see Joseph have to leave the room to cry 20 years of hurt as he hears them describe their own callousness towards him. Joseph now knows that they are beginning to sense the gravity of what they've done. But he isn't finished with them yet. He brings out Simeon and he, they tie him up. Maybe Joseph, he does it in front of them. Maybe he's watching to see whether they've got sympathy. And in verse 25, Joseph arranges for all their cash that they bought to buy grain to be put back in their sacks. He doesn't tell them this. Now, and this is interesting, think about this. This is now not just a test of brotherly loyalty. Will they just leave Simeon to rot in jail and go home and tell their dad he's been mauled by a wild animal? The added spice is that they've got their cash too. When they get the cash, when they find the cash in their sacks, will they pocket it? And go home and lie again to their dad that another brother has got killed? But I, I think their response to finding the cash is another development. So here's the second. The first thing is they're, they're beginning to acknowledge their guilt. The second thing is here, there's something here of an appropriate fear of God. Look at verse 28. They open their, they, they stop at the services on the way home and they have a little look in their sacks and they're all shocked to find that they've got their money in the top of their sacks. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other, trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? In their dark, guilty imaginations, they're beginning to sense that if God himself were to punish them for what they'd done to Joseph, it would only be what they deserved. It, it, somehow this reminds me of the criminal, the two criminals actually were crucified. Do you remember Jesus was crucified with a criminal on each side? And they started out by heaping, swearing and calling Jesus all kinds of names. And then one of them, as he's on the cross dying, suddenly he's overcome with a kick. And, and he says to the other one, don't you fear God? We're criminals. 
We're getting what we deserve. This man in the middle here, he's done nothing wrong. I think these men have a sense of the fear of God. To admit their guilt is one thing. But to have a sense that their sin is against God is something far deeper, isn't it? But there's a third thing here. There's something here too of a growing, sorrowful appreciation of what they've done. So when they get home and they explain to their dad, I'm not sure how they explain to Jacob, his reaction is so painful for them to, to hear, isn't it? They've been here before. <laughs> These brothers have been home before with silver in their pocket and one less brother. <laughs> and here they are coming home and Jacob's thinking, what on earth are these scoundrels up to? <laughs> My own sons. Look at his speech in verse 36. It's painful. Jacob says to his own sons, you've, de you've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. That's a 20-year-old hurt. Now, Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead. That's Joseph. And he's the only one left. The only son of his beloved wife, Rachel. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. Friends, this too is part of the process. Finally, they're beginning to see something of their father's grief in a new way. Just note in verse 37 that Reuben makes what one writer calls possibly the worst argument in the whole of the Bible. You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. That's absolutely brilliant. I tell you what, Dad, if we don't bring Benjamin back, we'll make you feel better by slaughtering two of your grandkids as well. I mean, what planet are these guys on? There's nothing they can say to comfort their dear dad anymore. It's as if they've killed him with grief. And in the grip of this great famine, circumstances conspire to make these brothers face the truth of what they've done. The pain they've caused. What they've been. So they're acknowledging their guilt they're beginning to sense that the, the, the fear of God is being awakened in their hearts and they're starting to feel genuine sorrow for what they've done to their dad and their brother. This is really hard for them, but it's so important. Sometimes we sing the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, written two or three, three centuries ago by John Newton. There's a line in that hymn. If you ever stop to think about what it means, John Newton says in that hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." He's writing from personal experience. He was a slave trader. And the first 
the first thing in his life that happened when God began to work in his heart was, was he, he, he sensing what these brothers are sensing. His guilt, fear of God, genuine sorrow. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. We assume that fear is bad, but friends, there is a good fear that is actually the beginning of recovery. And we mustn't be too quick to dismiss it. And I'm not saying, of course, that we've all done what these brothers have done. But the truth is that all of us, all of us are guilty of sin before God. And it may be that God is being gracious to you in teaching your heart to fear. Something's awakening within you. There's a conviction. And the Lord is gently leading you to see things that you've never seen before. Maybe helping you to see yourself more clearly. And of course, Joseph's aim here was not to humiliate or crush his brothers, but to bring them to the point where the healing of reconciliation would be authentic. And so too, God... Sometimes one of the first things God does in a person's life is to prod them and to nudge them and to convict them and it all feels so uncomfortable. And it, let me put it like this. It's almost as if God is like a, a brilliant doctor who comes to us and wants us to face an accurate diagnosis so that he can then relieve us with the wonderful cure that we need. That means that the gospel might sound to us initially like bad news, so that it then can become the most amazing good news. But see what a stalemate there is here at the end of this chapter in verse 38. Joseph wants Benjamin and Jacob says no. Some commentators think that this standoff Remember, they've now got 10 sacks of grain. They've got enough to eat. This standoff, some commentators think, lasts for two years, maybe. And don't forget that poor Simeon is still in jail in Egypt, and there's no internet. There's no, he doesn't know whether they're coming back. In the end, it is Jacob again who breaks the silence. And we're into the beginning of chapter 43 now the famine was still severe in the land so when they'd eaten all the grain they'd brought from Egypt their father said to them go back and buy us a little more food the second step is a very strange one Jacob eventually reluctantly agrees that he's got no choice and he has to let Benjamin go and so begins a second epic journey. But this time with Benjamin and a whole sack full of gifts. And the second step is having had this sense of guilt acknowledged, they needed to grasp the possibility of hope. Let's uh, jump down to verse 16 of chapter 43. 
And there we see that when they arrive, Joseph sees them with Benjamin. How heartrending this must be for Joseph. And Joseph quickly orders his steward to intercept them out of the queue and bring them to his own house. And this has the effect of increasing the brothers' terror. I mean, when you're going through passport control, if someone picks you out and takes you into a side room, um, you know, you're not expecting them to kind of congratulate you or give you a prize. Oh, they've, they've seen something. They want something. So they, they get taken out of the queue to Joseph's own house. They're wondering what special treatments Joseph's got in store for them. And it quickly makes them explain to the steward that they're so nervous that they didn't know about the silver being put in, back into their sacks. They, they've actually brought it all back, and the steward basically pretends to be surprised. And he, he basically says to them, Shalom, shalom, it's all okay. God must have put it back in your sacks. He, so here's the next step in their journey. To their fear of punishment is added this awakening hope of kindness. They go in there to the most beautiful hospitality. Verse 24. There's water to wash with. There's space and chance to relax together. When Joseph comes, they present their gifts and this fierce, strange Egyptian Lord speaks kindly to them. In verse 27... He asks about their father. And then he asks about Benjamin. And as they introduce Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, this strange Egyptian comes out with the most incredible blessing in their own language. God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph is so deeply moved that he has to go out again to weep in private. But he hasn't finished with them even yet. Two significant things to notice at the end of chapter 43. First of all, the brothers realise that they've been seated in age order in verse 33. I mean, that's incredible. And they're thinking, how does he know? How does he know how old they are? Who is this guy? What on earth is going on? Secondly, when the food is served, Benjamin, the youngest brother, gets supersized. So all the food comes out and they all get a portion. When they get to Benjamin, he gets five portions. I went out for an Indian last night with my mum and family. It's my mum's birthday this week. And they bring, you know, they bring all the stuff out and pickle trays and poppadoms. When, when they got to Benjamin, he got five lots. <laughs> five lots. Here's the thing, I wonder whether Joseph is testing them again. Remember, Joseph and Benjamin are the two favourite sons of Rachel. Is this a test of their jealousy? Are these brothers going to react and get annoyed again when they see that the favourite son has been shown favouritism again? Are they going to want to kick his head in because he always gets more than us? Jo Joseph's just looking, isn't he, to see. Have they changed? But the beauty of that last verse of chapter 43 
for the first time in this book, they feasted together and drank freely. These brothers are civil. They're actually getting on. They're actually enjoying a good time. Their fear of reprisal is fading and the hope of everything being okay is rising. Now, I hope you're still with me. It's a bit of a helicopter ride, isn't it, over four chapters of this, but I want to just pause and reflect on a danger here. If the story ended here, and it could end here, this meal, the road to reconciliation would actually be a cul-de-sac. Why? Here's the thing. The, the brothers had to face what they'd done, and it's a good thing that their hopes are now raised a little by Joseph's kindness, but at this point, these brothers could be thinking, phew, that was a bit of a sweat, but God, I think we got away with it. <laughs> Do you see? To, to fear punishment and then to be relieved, it doesn't necessarily change the heart, that does it? It is possible that they could know all of this and yet remain still brutes. They, they could be just glad that they've not been caught and punished and they just carry on like they did before. I think in relation to our relationship with God, some people might not get past step one because step one is very hard. Conviction feels hard. We, we don't want that. Others might understand that bit, but then stop at step two. Having this vague hope that God will be kind and they hope that God will be nice to them and everything will turn out okay. But actually, underneath it all, their hearts have not changed. So I think Joseph is very wise here in understanding that the road to reconciliation is not over yet. And this is the third step here. They, they needed to change. They needed to genuinely change. Joseph's already tested them a little, but now comes the final test. We're into chapter 44. Bleary-eyed the next morning. No doubt recovering from hangovers. But Joseph is up early to instruct his steward to take Joseph's own silver cup and put it in the top of Benjamin's sack. And so the brothers leave, and how good it must have felt. They now have Simeon. They've successfully still got Benjamin. They have their original silver and they have sacks that are bursting to the seams with grain for all their families. How light their hearts must have felt. Sorry. Happy, happy days. Little do they know that the hardest part is still to come. Remember, Joseph wants them to know, Joseph wants to know whether they've changed. And in verse 6 of chapter 44, the steward catches up with them and one by one, he does it deliberately from the oldest to the youngest, opens the sacks, one by one, they get to Benjamin, 
They open in Benjamin's sack and to their horror, he has Joseph's cup. And they all now need to troop back to Egypt and face Joseph. And in verse 17, Joseph very cleverly gives them the ultimate test. Judah offers that they all will become his slaves. But Joseph says, no, he only requires Benjamin. Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. You can all go free with your grain and with your cash. But the thief stays here. Benjamin. Do you see? Their crime over 20 years ago had been against Joseph, the favourite son. And they treated both him and their dad disgracefully. And now right here they're faced with the exact same opportunity. They can all flee, abandon the favourite brother, bring pain and sorrow to their old dad again. They can even keep the cash. What are they going to do in this moment? Judah is the one who steps forward and he makes one of the most powerful speeches you'll ever hear in verse 18 down to 24. It's actually the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. And in verse 20, Judah even uses Jacob's favoritism that they'd all been so jealous of as the basis of his argument. And he offers himself as substitute for his little brother. Do you see what has happened? Now Joseph knows that his brothers have changed. Judah's speech shows him that they actually do love their dad. And they even love their dad's favourite son. 22 years earlier, Judah had stood with his brothers and silently watched when the blooded tunic they had brought to Jacob sent their father into a fit of anguish. And now he's willing to do anything in order to not have to see his father suffer like that again. For Joseph, reconciliation is now possible. And the early part of chapter 45 is just so poignant. Almost 25 years of hurt mingled with forgiveness and a consciousness of the overarching presence of God in all of this dysfunctional mess. This, this is not Joseph's calculated logic here now anymore. This is the passion of his heart overflowing. Everything that God has taught Joseph in these painful two decades comes flowing out here in a torrent of forgiveness to wash away their shame and guilt and it's all built on the sovereign, loving control of God over all of their lives. In verse 5 and onwards, 
Joseph directs their eyes away from themselves and towards the grace of God. He says to them in verse 5, Now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. He's like, stop thinking about yourselves and think about what God has done. This is how he saved you. Joseph directs their gaze away from themselves and towards God's grace and kindness. We're nearly there, but there's one final step of the four. They had to actually embrace forgiveness. In verse 3, initially, the brothers are terrified. They were speechless. And as Joseph allays their fears and encourages their hearts to trust him and to see God's hand in all that's happened, they come forward to embrace him. I want to underline verse 14 and 15. You can't fail to be moved by this. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards his brothers talked with him. Did you ever see such a glorious picture of wrong being righted and reconciliation that is meaty and real and authentic taking place? What was it like for these brothers to fall on one another, weeping, and for them to be whispering in Joseph's ear, I'm so sorry, and for him to be replying, it doesn't matter, I love you, I forgive you. Somebody should make a musical out of this. The transformation of these brothers is complete as they embrace forgiveness. Our question was, Will they find mercy? They found it in spades, didn't they? Well, what an amazing story. First, God gets Joseph to Egypt. And then he's at work to transform these brothers so that they can be reconciled and join Joseph there too. I hope you can see the bigger story mirrored here. Jesus suffered and was glorified. And that in him, God is reconciling his enemies to himself. And providing King Jesus with a people who love him. I wonder whether you can sense God at work in your own heart in these four areas that we've talked about. For me to be reconciled to God, I need to be aware of my own sin. I need to be awakened to the kindness of Jesus. I need to actively be desiring to change. And I need to be accepting and embracing and relying on the forgiveness that God gives And in the Gospels, don't we see time and time again the depth of the compassion of Jesus 
his tender mercy, his tender-hearted mercy was like no other. In verse 4 of chapter 45 here, Joseph said to his brothers, after all they'd done, come, come close to me. And isn't that what Jesus says to all of us? Whatever we've done, wherever we've been, come close to me. I know you feel guilty, but if you will have me, I'll have you. Come. But notice the thing that enabled Joseph to be, giving and, to be forgiving and kind is simply the fact that he now knows that this was God's plan to save them all. He says that God had sent him to Egypt ahead of them in order to save them. Joseph's like, why would I kill you now? Why would I kill you now when this has been God's plan? This was his job. This was his purpose. So here's the thing. These brothers were safe in this moment for two reasons. Number one, it was God's plan all along. And number two, Joseph was kind. Do you sometimes feel, do you sometimes wonder whether God loves you? Be reassured by this. Your salvation depends on two things. The plan of God and the kindness and compassion of Jesus. It's the same thing. He isn't going to change his mind at the last moment or find something in the small print in Appendix D. In the story of Joseph, God got his man onto the throne and that meant that he would also get the brothers to the palace too. God has made sure that his son made it to heaven and he will make sure that every single one of his people gets there too, reconciled and full of joy. We read from 2 Corinthians 5 and I, I want to just close with this. Here are Paul's words 2,000 years later. Let's read these words again now with a fresh understanding, having looked at this story. Paul says, as a minister of the gospel, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, today, at this very moment, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We, we thank you for these just tremendous narratives. We thank you for the way that you have buried the truths of your gospel 
in these real life human stories. We thank you most of all that it reminds us of your great plan of salvation and it points us to Jesus, the greater Joseph. We thank you for his tender compassion for us, poor, broken, sinful as we are. We pray that you would help us Help us to understand how much you are for us and help us help us to understand how much you want to embrace us and may that cause us to embrace you. Help us to be reconciled to you. We thank you that Jesus is in heaven and we thank you that you will make sure that all of his beloved people will join him there. We thank you for that hope. We pray that it would sustain us. And we pray in Jesus' name.